Well, it's good to be back with you as we had a little bit of a hiatus last week with the congregational meeting. Uh, We're going to get back into Romans today. Uh, Remember last time we left off two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 5. And we saw there uh, a contrast, but also a comparison between Adam and Christ. We ended with verses 20 and 21, and we're actually going to pick up with those verses today. I will readily admit that as I was looking through this passage, my my plan uh, was to cover the first 14 verses of chapter 6 today. As I got into it, I realized that was way overzealous. Uh, So that's going to be probably a two-week, maybe even a three-week study. But I want to read the entire text just so you see where we've come from, the end of Romans 5, where we're going to be today, which is Romans 6, 1 through 4, and then where we're headed, Lord willing, for next week. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn to Romans 5. We're going to begin in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just in Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life." For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So Paul's been developing this theme in the first five chapters of Romans to really highlight justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he's going to continue along those same lines, but he he makes a transition point here in chapter 6 because he knows, as we know as Christians, that justification will ultimately lead to sanctification, which is what he's getting into here in chapter 6. I want us to consider this text today under three headings, sin and grace, verses 1 and 2, baptized into Christ and into his death, verses 3 and 4, and then the newness of life that we read about in verse 4. So we know we are justified by grace alone, not through works. We are not saved by the law. 
And as Paul mentions at the end of Romans 5, he says, sin, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And some liberals want to take this passage and say, well, hey, is Paul actually giving us a license to sin here? And the antinomians would say, yes, he is. Antinomians would answer that in the affirmative. Antinomianism literally means against law. Biblically speaking, it means against the law of God. So their view is that if God's grace is indeed greater than our sin, then it doesn't really matter what I do because my sin is going to be covered by the grace and forgiveness of God. Furthermore, if we're not saved by works, they say, then what part do works really have in the life of the Christian? They would say they have no place in the life of the Christian. Therefore, good works are unnecessary for the Christian. Antinomians, where does this view leave us in terms of our sanctification? Well, it doesn't lead us anywhere with sanctification because there's not a a desire to really change in light of our justification. There's no need in the antinomian world to put off the old and put on the new. There's no need to talk about mortifying our sins. So the antinomians will teach that justification is all that's needed. And we really don't need to obey Scripture because that's going to produce good works which are not necessary in the life of the Christian. Maybe you've, you've heard some of these familiar lines from antinomians. They'll say things like, well, I'm forgiven anyway. Or they may say, God is loving and gracious. He won't judge me. Well, these are simply not biblical responses to what Paul is writing about here. You know, the, the people that will uh, support antinomianism, these are the, the churches that I will refer to as uh, come as you are, leave as you were. Why is that? Because there's no emphasis on change. And sometimes these churches may have a great emphasis on converting people, which that could be questioned if they really are or not, genuine Christians, but there's no emphasis at all on discipling the followers of Jesus Christ into mortifying sins and growing in holiness. Well, during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church actually thought that Luther and other reformers were antinomians. Their biggest fear was that the reformers would take the doctrine of sola fide, that is justification by faith alone, as a license to sin. But the Catholic Church didn't realize that the reformers actually had the same concern as they reminded their Catholic friends of Paul's teaching in Romans 6. R.C. Sproul comments that Luther responded, and I have this on your handout, to the charge by explaining that we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. What's the idea there? You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. We're justified, but it doesn't stop there. It continues into giving us a desire to love the Word of God and to live out unto the glory of God. R.C. Sproul continues to write, every time the gospel is preached, the demon of antinomianism knocks at the door and says that if we are justified by faith, then works do not count. And if works do not count, then works do not matter. No work we ever do will contribute to our justification. In that sense, our works 
do not count. Listen to what he says. However, it's not the same thing as saying they do not matter because we are justified not by good works, but we are justified unto good works. We are justified by our, we're not justified by our sanctification, but we are justified unto sanctification. You see the point there? It's a big point, a big distinction. They both matter. Good works matter, not in justification, but they matter in sanctification. There's really three different formulas being juxtaposed. One belongs to the Catholics, one to the Protestants, and one to the Antinomians. The Catholics believe that faith plus works give you justification. The Protestants, though, believe that justification plus works equals faith. So we see that works are on the other side of the equation. In other words, faith, an indwelling genuine faith, will produce good works unto the glory of God. Antinomians, however, believe works don't matter, right? So justification minus works equals faith. And this is the exact heresy that Paul is preaching against in Romans 6. Well, Paul is saying that while grace is greater than sin, that's true, that grace also gives us a desire, a motivation to live holy lives, which necessarily will involve mortification of sin and pursuing the Lord Jesus. Why is this? Because when we are justified, we are regenerated. We are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely false to believe that one can actually be converted and not have any change whatsoever. Why is it false? Because it's absolutely denying the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life that's regenerated. Do you realize that the same regenerating power that brought you to saving faith will grow you in that faith? The same regenerating power that brought you to saving faith will grow you in that faith. It's not just a justifying power through the Holy Spirit. It is also a sanctifying power. Romans 12, 1-2, we'll talk about presenting our entire lives as a sacrifice to God who has called Him to Himself and through the Holy Spirit who is giving us the power to live transformed lives. We see this in other passages too. Ephesians 2, 8-10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, in those three small verses, justification, which then leads to sanctification. That our good works as part of our sanctification bears testimony to the saving work of the Lord Jesus in our lives. One cannot be truly justified without having some degree of sanctification. Simon Kistemacher has written that our sanctification proves our justification. They're, they're really inextricably linked. And that's what Paul's getting at here. So we see in the first verse of Romans 6, Paul asking really a rhetorical question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, as Christians, can we continue in our former habitual pattern of sin because we're now forgiven? 
Is this acceptable? And Paul answers emphatically, by no means. And then he asks another question, how can we who died to sin still live in that sin? In other words, if our former self is now dead, dead to sin, and we are now alive to Christ, how can we continue in old habitual patterns of sin? When Paul writes in verse 2, by no means, or as some translations render it, may it never be, this is the strongest idiom of repudiation in the Greek New Testament. It's used 14 times in Paul's letters. And it carries with it a sense of, almost a sense of outrage that one would even consider this being a possible idea. We cannot and we must not continue in old patterns of sin. Now, is it true that we struggle with sin? Yes. There's a constant inward battle as we struggle and we fight against that sin. But the point is, as Christians, it's now a fight. And the unbeliever is not a fight. As Christians, it is. We're continuing by the power of the Holy Spirit to put off, to put on, to put to death sins that so easily ensnare and entangle. Well, Paul moves from discussing law and grace to now discussing the importance of our union with Christ. Why does he do that? Because it's our union with Christ that makes all of this possible. And so we see in verse 3 that we as Christians have been baptized into Christ and thus baptized into His death. What does he mean by that? Well, we first have to look at the definition of baptism. There's two closely related Greek words here. The first is bapto, which means to dip or immerse. And the second is baptizo, which means to immerse, but may also have other meanings. Now, the Greeks use the words in classical literature to denote a change that had taken place. James Boyce gives further explanation, which is really, I think, palpable and important to understand for our text today. The clearest example I know that shows the meaning of baptize is a text from the Greek poet and physician Nicander, who lived about 200 B.C. It's a recipe for making pickles. And the idea is that Nicander, this poet and physician, said that to make a pickle, the vegetable, cucumber, should first be dipped into boiling water and then baptized in a vinegar solution. Both verbs concern immersing the vegetable in a solution, but the first is temporary. The second, the act of actually baptizing the vegetable, produced a permanent change. You get that? That's what Paul's after here. It's a permanent change. So in Romans 6.3, Paul is not referring to water baptism, but rather he's referring to the change that is wrought or produced from justification. We see this in other verses as well. 1 Corinthians 10.1-2 For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers are, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We see in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So these verses and verse 3 of Romans 6 don't speak of specifically water baptism, but rather speak of our new identity in Christ 
because of our justification. It's not water baptism necessarily in verse 3 that he's speaking of, but rather what it signifies or what it points to, namely that we have been redeemed by the blood of the spotless lamb. And in him, we have been changed. We have a change of state, we could say, because of our justification. We are new creatures in Christ. We who were in Adam are now in Christ. Praise God for that. And because of that, Paul is going to work this out in the coming verses that we'll see in the next few weeks, but because of that, we have new affections. Because we are not in Adam, we are in Christ. We have new affections. We have new desires. We have new habits. We have different speech. We have different actions and behaviors that flow from a changed, regenerated heart. So when Paul asks in verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is no. The answer is no, for now we have union with Christ. Because of that, we are dead to sin. Leon Morris notes, Christ's death alone is the grounds of our justification. And when we make that our own by faith, we are united with Christ. We're united with Him in His death, united with Him in His burial, united with Him in His rising again, united with Him in His life. Paul is affirming strongly that the justified are those united by faith to all that Christ means, and therefore antinomianism is impossible for them. Well, notice Paul in verse 4 continues this idea of being baptized. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in in newness of life. Previously in our study of Romans, we've discussed the effects of the fall. Namely, that we are born with a sin nature and we are born in enmity with God. Why is that? Because of the effects of the first fall called original sin. Augustine would on occasion use the metaphor of Satan riding a horse. Prior to our conversion, we, we're the horse, we the horse have one rider, and that's Satan. He has the bit in our teeth. He's in control of the reins. When he turns our head in a certain direction, that's the direction we go. When he says, whoa, we stop. When he says, giddy up, we go because Satan is our master and we are his slave. But when we are converted by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, there's a change. But Satan doesn't give up willingly. There's a fight. Satan gives up the reins, but reluctantly, and he will do everything he can to get back the bit back in our mouth and to recover us as a slave because he hates to lose a slave to God. We have to fight against the enticements of Satan throughout our entire Christian life because he's furious. We have left his design. But something radically new has happened we have gone through a spiritual resurrection. What does the Bible say about it? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We're radically different now than we were before our conversion. 
And it's the Lord's doing as we submit our lives to Him and allow Him to work in and through us and to bring about change in our life through the ordinary means of grace. You know, one of the great blessings, I'll say, of, of being in a church like ours that is serious about the Word of God is that if you attend to the ordinary means of grace, the Word, the prayer, and the sacraments, and you seek to do that, and you allow that to drive you into your own personal study at home of the Bible, you can't help but grow. You can't help but be further and more and more sanctified and made more holy as the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that saved you continues that powerful work in you to bring you more and more to Christ and make you more like Him. Well, I want us to look at something, look back at something I said earlier, which has great relevance with regard to verse 4. I said that baptism signifies union with Christ and death to sin. We must have union with Christ, that is justification, to free us from sin. I was at a funeral recently that celebrated the life of a person that had departed from this earth and into the everlasting arms of His heavenly Father. We attended the memorial service. We also attended the graveside service. And at the graveside service, the person's body, which was lying in the casket, was actually put into a vault and sealed into this vault. The person's body had been, we could say, permanently removed from this sphere of life. When like manner, Paul wants to emphasize in these verses for us today the finality or the permanency of us being removed from the rule of sin and death and ushered into the rule of Christ. He's saying that we as Christians have died to sin. Yes, we're going to continue to struggle with it. We have died to sin, people. It no longer has dominion and rule over us. So once we have been joined to Christ to go back to sin, to go back to, we could say, old habitual patterns of sin would be like digging up a dead, decaying body. That's the picture Paul wants to give us here. Well, notice too, at the end of verse 4, Paul states, we not only have died to sin, but we have newness of life. We have been baptized into death so that, as he writes, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Thus, we are dead to our former ways in which we once walked and while we were enslaved to Satan, and we are now alive with new life in Christ, who is our new master? Now, how many of you guys, as you think back over your life, y'all that are married, when you got married, how many of you experienced a lot of change? I hear some laughter and a lot of hands. There's great change. Could it be a last name that was changed? Could it be an address that was changed? The way you now make decisions changes. Everything changes, right? And yet, when you marry, which is one of the greatest days, no doubt, of our lives, but it doesn't bring about the greatest change. What brings about the greatest change in our life was when you and I were brought to saving faith. That brings about the greatest change. We have, as R.C. Sproul puts it, changed from spiritual death to now spiritual life 
from bondage to freedom. Sin characterized our former life, but not so in our new life. For we are in Christ, and because Christ is reigning in our lives, it is righteousness that should characterize our new life in Him. Well, Charles Hodge notes, there can be no participation in Christ's life without a participation in His death. And we cannot enjoy the benefits of His death unless we are partakers of the power of His life. We must be reconciled to God in order to be made holy, and we cannot be reconciled without thereby becoming holy. See the idea there? There's a whole idea of justification and sanctification, distinct and different, but justification inevitably leading to sanctification and a pursuit of holiness. I want us to spend a couple of minutes around our tables today discussing this. And this will be a real-life scenario for you all in another week, perhaps. For others, it may not. Let's just say over the Christmas holiday, you're with a family member or you're with a friend. And this is the person that says, I am a Christian. I know who Jesus is. Uh, but I don't go to church. I'm really seeking to be a good moral person. My relationship with God is between me and Him. There is no real need for personal growth and personal holiness. That's for another class or another kind of Christians. You get what I'm saying here? How would you minister to that person? For those of you that may not have that experience coming up in another week or two, how would you give wisdom to those that will? That's a real life thing in even the broad evangelical world. How would you minister to a person like that? Spend a few minutes and discuss around your tables. All right, let's come back together. So I kind of painted a scenario and a context. A person believes they're a Christian. They're not involved with church. They don't see a need for it trying to live a good moral life, actually doing and obeying Scripture, this is for a different kind of Christian, not for them. And how would you minister to that person was the question. Some of you all have uh, family members, no doubt. Uh, Some of you have friends like that. Um, How would you minister to them in a loving, gracious way? I've got a microphone. It means it's time for you to share. I've dealt with many people like that who don't go to church or say, claim they're a Christian but don't gather and just go to Romans 13, you know, give a, uh, submit to those who are over you in the Lord, who have the authority over you in the Lord. And I just asked a simple question, who's over you in the Lord? You know, the Bible is emphatic about that and they, they sort of sit there and they, they really can't answer that question. You know, they're not beholden to anybody, not responsible to anybody. Well, Jesus himself said, he said, if you are, you are truly a disciple of mine, you will abide in my word. Speak a little bit louder, Ken. If you are truly a disciple of mine, you will abide in my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So how is it you're not abiding in the word? How is it you're not trying to obey him? That's good. Anyone else? <laughs> is that a hand? Yeah. Reluctantly. 
recently, but yes. <laughs> um, so I shared, and this is a book that I'm, I'm halfway through now, um, but an interesting, different approach, rather than pointing necessarily back to scripture, which is important, um, but from, and maybe some of you maybe have read the book Tactics, um, and asking questions to better understand in their words, um, you know, how they're thinking about it. So starting with a question that is, um, you know, uh, not off-putting, you know, but just saying, you know, when they make a statement, what do you mean by that? And getting them to talk in their own words um, and then following up with, how did you come to that conclusion so that you can understand their logic mm -hmm. and then start to probe on some of those faulty points, but so that they feel understood by you, but you also learn more rather than trying to assume where the breakdown is, um, that you better understand their backstory and what's really behind it. Good. You know, part of this just comes naturally from relationships. It's hard to speak to someone about these things that you really don't already have a relationship with, which is partly what that is, right? Getting to know the person, asking questions. Everybody has a narrative, um, but then not shying away, presenting scripture in a loving, gracious way. Anybody else? Yeah, this is a situation that we definitely will be in this Christmas, and uh, our our prayer has to be uh, because these are family members. I mean, we start arguing if we get into too much uh, you know, doctrine and that sort of thing. But uh, is that the Holy Spirit would would make our words effective and and um, move them closer to the Lord? So, Amen. Yeah, it's good. Anyone else? Get my steps in this morning. I think if someone is a believer, they will come to love what Jesus loves. And because he does love the church, um, that will become evident in their life through the Holy Spirit. And if they're not a believer, that will also become evident. Good. How do we know the church is important to Jesus? Because he gave his life for the church, right? And so, um, yeah, all these are, are good. You know, we can learn from one another in, in good, wholesome, godly discussion, and these are all important things. What I want us to see today, just in, in providing a brief intro, these first four verses of uh, Romans 6, is yes, now that we've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we see there is now a need to continue that and we grow we grow through sanctification how can we do that we can do that because of our union with christ and the indwelling holy spirit who uh, gives us the power and the strength to put off and to put on so we have union with christ we have newness of life in him now we have the power of the holy spirit to help grow us uh, through through God's Word to us, that we might become more and more holy. And that's where we're going to continue to go uh, in Romans 6 over the next one to two weeks. Let's close out our time in prayer. God in heaven, we are thankful for Your Word. And we are thankful, so thankful, Lord, that we are justified by Your grace, Father, 
We thank You, Lord, that You don't stop there, though. You desire to justify, but You also desire to sanctify. And so help us, Father, to willingly uh, yield ourselves to You. Almost daily consecrating our lives to You. That they would be a pleasing aroma to You. That we might live our days uh, in a way that would bear testimony to our justification in a way that would bear testimony to Your saving work in our lives, that You would be glorified. Help us, Lord, as we think about uh, Christmas coming up and, and family members and friends and being with those that may not be saved or, or may not have a clear understanding of what salvation is. Lord, help us to speak truth with love and grace and help us to model, to model in a gracious way that, what you, that which You have done for us. We thank you, Father, for that saving work. In Jesus' name, amen.